Okay, hello everyone. Thank you so much for joining today for uh, the AIWA Los Angeles Las Vegas uh, section. Uh, Saturday meeting. Uh, we'll have a very interesting topic uh, today, uh, not only for uh, space biomedicine, but also for commercialization in space, which is a very important subject for NASA. Um, a small business and uh, uh, we also have this is related to the local workforce development and uh, uh, also business as well. So I'm so so glad to see Dr. Menabe because Aerospace Corporation has uh, uh, a lot of interest that, uh, uh, in, in the commercialization in, in space. So uh, I wish this is a good opportunity for everybody to know each other, uh, you know, to get connected to each other. So um, before we start the program, just a few words. Um, uh, we think the library, uh, Artesia Library, can see this is a beautiful room. You know, we took a, took a, took us a lot of time to get the uh, spot here. Um, so we try to keep the room clean. So no food in the room. Bottle water is okay. Uh, so if you have trash, please bring it to the trash can outside. Uh, the restroom, you walk outside just across the the door, and. Uh, um, other than that, I think we are pretty good, well set, all set. Um, then a few words about ALWA. ALWA is a nonprofit professional organization. As I chatted with uh, uh, Ms. Shepherd earlier before the meeting, uh, ALWA came from the merger in 1962 with two distinguished organizations. One was with uh, the Wright Brothers on aircraft aviation. The other, uh, the other one was founded by uh, Robert Goddard, uh, that's associated with rocket, American rocketry, as you know. So traditionally, those two organizations uh, both founded in 1920s. So uh, they, they were either in aircraft or rocketry. So the traditional uh, airway folks were mostly either rocket or aircraft. The reason why I mentioned this is because today's topic is space biomedicine. Uh, quite some people think that this may airway might not have something to do with it, but actually it's not. Uh, ALWA actually has a very a strong group of technical committees, uh, have biomedicine, you know, microgravity. Uh, personally, I'm involved with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, microgravity space processing technical committee, and the space medicine has uh, a lot of things to do with human space flight. And uh, actually, ALWA has a lot of people involved with this issue, but traditionally, people think ALWA as uh, either rocket, rocket or aircraft. That's just the way it was. But Elway uh, certainly has been trying to uh, build a connection uh, with different industries. Um, for example, Alina, later you'll hear her presentation. She actually presented in the AIAA Ascent National Conference in Las Vegas in October, right? Later October. So that when I, uh, she and I met, so arranged a local chapter because anything, just like we chatted with Deborah, uh, we will have Deborah introduce uh, herself uh, shortly later. Uh, is that anything you come down to uh, execution or any policy or effort, you come down to the local chapter. That's what we are. And the local, locally, ALWA has uh, 1,000 members and uh, social uh, our mail list sending out to nine over 9,000 people. Social media had more than 16,000 people. Um, so local chapter is very effective in connecting to the local uh, people and uh, organization, but national people, they will be able to uh, fix on something big, bigger, and they have more resources like Ascend. 
uh, to um, push forward some of the national agenda. Um, so uh, just a little history about the space medicine. So honestly speaking, the section, which I mean Los Angeles and the Las Vegas section, um, which include Long Beach area as well. We have been doing several uh, space medicine event. Uh, I can remember in 2017, 18, we have a group from Loma Linda University, which remind me, uh, they actually have been doing something similar to space box, but they for academic. And they are not focused on mini lab, they're focusing on regular uh, payload and they have SpaceX launch their experiment. Uh, I, I invited the Dean and uh, the uh, main professor uh, to join us today, but unfortunately they are very busy, but some of the attendee might be the student or their staff member from Loma Linda. Uh, they, um, they also work with like Stanford University. So almost each year we'll have one or two uh, space medicine related event. Actually, last year I was talking to a professor in uh, Belgium. Uh, she she is the delegate to for Belgium to uh, United Nations on this kind of space uh, medicine, uh, astronaut safety, those kind of things. Um, so we are trying to build this and also for the uh, commercialization space workforce development. So this is this event is very much involved. Uh, in, in this kind of thing. Uh, just try to explain that for commercial space, uh, for Airway, Airway is not a lobbying uh, organization, but we do uh, focus on helping people for space, uh, like uh, policy, public policy, and the workforce de development. So commercialization, startup, just like a space box, this thing is, is related to our workforce, uh, workforce development. Uh, effort and public policy. That's what I want to point out. And also we have a lot of technical community. I chatted this with uh, Bridget, right? Bridget and I chatted a lot. And also uh, Miss Shepard here, which is uh, highly, highly related. So uh, Bridget and Emani here, and uh, mostly related to helping this uh, startup business, but uh, Miss Shepard is involved with the national effort for uh, workforce. Uh, so those are the people you might want to get acquainted with. Okay, so um, if any question, uh, please uh, uh, let, let me know anytime. Uh, so uh, without further ado, we'll start the presentation because I know for uh, Aerostar, uh, the time is Europe is pretty, pretty late. Uh, so let me start uh, with today's program. So basically we will have three speakers today. Uh, Kimberly, the fourth speaker, unfortunately, uh, she is not feeling very well, but uh, she and a group of her friends will be joining, just attending online. Uh, then she will be giving a talk maybe later on. So the first speaker today is the founder and CEO of Spacebox Scientific, uh, Mr. Yaroslav uh, Zablatinoko. Uh, so he will uh, explain a little bit more about this company and also himself, but basically he has a, a strong expertise in molecular biology and the genetics. And uh, uh, the thing, as I mentioned, the reason why I mentioned uh, the story about Elway is related to his background, because he is working in between the aerospace and the biomedicine communities. And he's trying to work out um, the automated life science mini lab for scalable microgravity research. Uh, so uh, let's welcome Yaroslav. Yeah, thank you so much, Ken, for this uh, introduction. Good morning, everyone. 
And I'm just going to start right from the slides. I hope you can see them right now. Yes. Uh, can you see it? Yes. Perfect. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. So I started this company, Spacebox Scientific, uh, as a molecular biologist, uh, and I've teamed up with professionals in aerospace engineering and space biologists who already send their experiments into space to actually figure out how to bring microgravity biology to a completely new level. And the new level is translational research. So basically what we are doing in Spacebox is we're helping to develop biological solutions that will be used to actually treat patients or to bring real products to the market. Essentially, our mission is to allow anyone from pharmaceutical company to even high school to do biotech research in space. And in Spacebox, we harness this potential of microgravity for groundbreaking discoveries in drug design, disease modeling, with our user-friendly and automated mini labs. So I will just start quickly with um, like a overall um, introduction to commercial biomedical research in space, what has been already done. And before, uh, one of the biggest companies that has been visiting the space and one of the most important use cases is crystallization of proteins that was done by Merck. They were first who actually found out that proteins in space are crystallized larger and more uniform in size. And this allowed them to create a new drug called Keytruda or Pembrolizumab. This is like um, an antibody that helps to treat the cancer patients. So on Earth, it was not possible to, to crystallize this protein properly, but in space, um, it was possible to do just in two experiments that they sent 2017 and 2018, they already got the product. And since this time, it brought more than $7 billion of revenue for the company. Second is Sanofi. This follow-up with their groundbreaking research in antibody crystallization. So it has a huge potential to enhance the efficiency and storage of antibody-based drugs. And Lambda Vision is uh, one of the also companies who came to this from slightly different perspectives. So they investigated the production of retinal implants in space and they're aiming to restore the vision of those who are affected by retinal degenerative diseases. And um, those are the companies that have been making the most input. Of course, there's also AstraZeneca, Microqueen, who are dealing with cancer biology and doing this in microgravity research. So we are focusing in Spaceblocks on three main value propositions. First is enhanced drug testing. So in, in microgravity, when you go to microgravity, you can basically create the disease models of the new generation. So when you work with cells uh, on Earth, it's harder to get them to, let's say, 3D structure. When you go to space, you can actually create the so-called um, 3D aggregates. So when you work with organoids or spheroids of different disease models, such as cancer, or neurodegenerative disorder, it's much easier to do it in uh, microgravity because cells do not pull on each other, do not push, and uh, this allows more complex structure. And more complex means closer to actual human physiology. And when you test drugs on this 
samples, you can actually breach the gap between preclinical and clinical studies. You can increase the efficiency of your drug testing. Of course, second big um, value proposition is the drug discovery uh, of proteins. So protein crystallization that I already mentioned. And the third is very important for uh, fundamental sciences in longevity, especially it's accelerated aging. So when you go into space, uh, the first research was basically devoted to it. Uh, the devoted to it was 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 basically it allowed us to know that in space the age-related disorders are you you can basically investigate them ten times faster because of the aging process. Aging is accelerated in space, so each time you you bring your experiment into space, you can fast track the experiment and get the results much much faster. And uh, of course, time means uh, a lot of resources. Uh, so in Spacebox, we are focusing on 3D cell culturing, as I mentioned. So creating new kind of complex disease models, protein crystallization. And from 2028, we're going to go into space by manufacturing market. So we are focusing on space by pharma market. And uh, this is like a $3 billion opportunity right now. There is also a bigger um, market that is space biotech is focused not only on pharmaceutical comp compounds but also cosmetics and food production and all of the stuff that is related to biology in space and if you go to overall biopharma R&D which is the, the global market it is around 300 billion dollars so this is a, a growing market and there are more and more um, use cases each year arising. So there are also mRNA technologies that are being uh, done in space, new sequencing technologies, new cancer treatment approaches. So there are more and more use cases each year and this allows a steady and um, substantial growth of this market. So in space, cell biotech is growing yeah, I can say the the same uh, with the same companion um, compound annual growth rate as uh, the space biopharma, and in 2030 it will reach 10 billion dollars. So, what we identified during our journey in uh, a space biotech that uh, usually when researchers go into space they have several different problems, and most of them are of course related to the high price high, low cost efficiency of the biotech research on the International Space Station. Because NASA changed its pricing policy in 2019 from complete grant coverage to the point that companies have to pay themselves for each research, the prices went up and still uh, companies have to pay themselves for the whole, whole commercial research. And our mission is to drop this price to allow more companies to go into space. Also, as we've spoken to many researchers worldwide, they all say that sometimes astronauts fail their experiments. So because they have limited crew time or skills, they cannot do very precise, highly skilled um, yeah, protocols that require a lot of time and a lot of attention. So what we do in Spacebox, we propose one solution, the fully automated and portable mini labs for microgravity research. 
and this allows us not to be not, not uh, to be not only three times cheaper than the competitors because of the optimization and portability of our technology, but also to provide the reproducible data with higher quality because we cross out the human factor and automate the whole experiment. Our portable devices can also be used not only in space applications, but on Earth in clinics. And we developed a machine learning tool for optimization of different protocols. So what we are, what I want to actually focus on in this presentation, in this talk, in this talk, is the um, how we facilitate the drug testing and how we increase actually the efficiency of preclinical studies. Overall, space biopharmacy and pharmacology is very complicated um, field because you have a lot of yeah, compounds that influence your experiment. And the drug discovery usually takes up to 10 years and up from $3 billion to seven, $8 billion for just one drug to be developed. When we talk about the cancer treatment or neurodegenerative disorders, it's getting more and more harder because of the absence of alternative treatments and we don't have so much data to build on. So this is when we stop, step in and say that we can increase actually the preclinical uh, study efficiency. So right now it's just 10% of drugs that are tested on preclinical stage that can actually go to approval for clinical uh, trials and then the FDA approval. So just 10% get to the market. And with our technology of microgravity, both microgravity and microfluidics for increasing the complexity of disease models, we can actually increase the success rate of preclinical studies. We can increase the efficiency of drug testing. Um, we, uh, we, are, we are getting to this point due to simplification of 3D cell aggregation. So it's easier to get more complex organoids or assembloids of different cells. I hope I don't overwhelm you with biology. Uh, it's just the how the 3D structures of cell formate. So when we speak about um, just the 2D cell, it's just a plate cell in 2D structure. When we, sell, when we talk about the 3D cell uh, structures, it, it's basically a um, more comprehensive cell-to-cell -cell interaction, like spheroids. And if we go even further, we can get to the organoid structure when we have a small, tiny piece of the organ that resembles the physiology. As we go further, we can increase actually the complexity from organoids to assembloids and assemble different systems in one different organ systems in one. So this is what we are targeting with our microfluidic systems to help to actually get to this point when we can um, simulate and cre create the real disease models to test the drugs on them. So we enhance the complexity and size of the models with microgravity and microfluidics. Our autonomous mini labs can actually be used um, for space uh, and delivered via different approaches. So you can go either to International Space Station or you can use the free flyers. To get to International Space Station, you can use the docking station. So our technology is compatible with, uh, uh, with all of the 
service providers. We also develop our own CubeSat technologies. So we have the manufacturing facility for this. Also testing of the, of the payloads, so vibrational tests, uh, safety tests. And then you can also go for different uh, free flyers as space riders, uh, European Space Agency initiative and re-entry capsules. They have their own benefits, uh, so pros and cons. As we are compatible with all of them, we can get your research from long-term to short-term for, uh, you can go for cargo return or you can basically investigate your research remotely. With CubeSat, you can go up to three years in space, but you cannot get your cargo return on Earth as of now. Of course, there are technologies that are aiming for it, that are, that are being developed, but as of now, it's not possible. But what you can, can actually do, you can investigate the, for example, one of the research that I have been doing in my studies, I've been investigating how ecology of microbes and plants is being uh, established in microgravity. And we did it on CubeSat. So it was a project of sending the plants into space on CubeSat and then just do the phenotyping and obtain the data remotely. When you speak about the cells, of course, you want to do some more complicated downstream analysis. You want to get them back. You want to use them for uh, pharmaceutical experiments. And this, this is when you have to go to Space Rider, Reentry Capsules, or the International Space Station. Unfortunately, the International Space Station is still very hard. You have to wait at least one year. Sometimes your flight is being delayed. Sometimes you have cancellations of flights. So it's very unpredictable. So basically, the space box has um, formed itself as a research institute project. So we are a spin-off of many different institutions that being all the consortium of Ukrainian space agency. So we've been all in the early research uh, in space biotechnology. And then we formed different entities that are providing CubeSats, providing biological research separately, and mostly uh, we've been doing the CubeSat experiments. In 2014, we sent successfully the first Ukrainian nanosatellite, Polyton first. It's still orbiting the Earth for nine years, which is the, the, the global record for orbital duration. In 2017, we released the second um, CubeSat from the International Space Station to study the thermosphere of Earth. And in 2023, it was the latest uh, project of ours for just um, thermal simulation inside the CubeSat to carry out these 37 degrees temperatures that we need for cells to be cultivated. And now we have the whole set of technology to send the biological experiment into space, which is our next step. So we have done three successful space missions, secured already long-term customers for willing to go with us into space and also do clinical studies with our technology secured partners for logistics, certification, and launch. So we have the whole, let's say, end-to-end -end market for this, end-to-end -end pipeline. So we can get your idea, develop it, and send it into space. And we have in-house R&D uh, facility for cutting-edge devices, for, to, to build cutting-edge devices for biology. We are currently developing it. It's um, it's just the, the first steps that we have, but 
as we grow, we are developing it more and more and uh, basically aiming to also get our own uh, preclinical studies uh, on Earth. This is our core team. So people who are doing cell biology and genetics, uh, who've been working in space biotech already, have PhD degrees and working with complex disease models, both in neurosciences, cancer biology. We have people who are representing us from business side, sales and marketing experts, people who are using the uh, aerospace engineering as a, as a stepping point and basically develop not only nanosatellites, but also propulsion system, telemetry solutions. So everything you need to get actually data back from space to earth. And of course, I'm grateful for our scientific advisory board, people who've been sending the experiments into space. Uh, Dr. Alison Nwotri, who sent uh, organoids uh, into space this year, actually recently and many other people from Yale University, Czech Republic, and uh, Ukraine. So together, we open affordable access to translational research, helping to improve billions of lives of people on Earth through microgravity studies. Thank you so much. I will be happy to answer any questions, so please feel free to jump in with a question. Yeah, I have a question. This is Martin McLaughlin. Um, can any of this be done suborbitally? Uh, you know, do you, or do you need months? Uh, is it? Can any of it be done if, say, you had fifteen minutes of microgravity? Yes, uh, many experiments can be um, induced with altered gravity with a zero g flights, for example. Um, you have yeah 15 minutes of, of, of microgravity, but this is not enough to study, for example, the time lapse of how 3D aggregates are forming in space. So for example, the microqueen, they want to see how the breast cancer is being developed in space from day one till day 90, 160, 300. So they want long-term studies in space. And this is when we can provide it with the CubeSat technology. You can go into space for three years, for example. Many plant sciences studies also require very long time because of the plant physiology is quite slow. The metabolism is also slow. So you have to develop some long-term approaches. And uh, when we talk about protein crystallization, it's not possible to do it in just 15 minutes. So we have to go to space. We have to be present. Follow-up question: If um, uh, how sensitive is it to the re-entry environment? Uh, would a lot of this is there a great value in having a, a, a gentle, soft re-entry, or can a lot of these experiments take uh, you know a typical uh, you know capsule-like uh, hard you know six G re-entry? Yeah, yeah, this is a big issue for us. So the only possibility to um, actually adverse this issue is to preserve your cells before the flight. And when you reach the low Earth orbit, you have to somehow, via temperature or chemical adaptation, you have to defreeze it, introduce it into the culture, culture them, freeze them, or fixate them, and then bring them, bring them back to, to Earth to have the, like a very clear experiment. When you have a 
really good control of microgravity research on Earth. So either through um, orbital, um, yeah, like um, RPM machines that just circulate your 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 experiment, and then on Earth in space you have uh, the actual research uh, when you have like only Earth uh, low um, low. Um, Yes, so Leo, uh, sorry, I just, the low Earth orbit uh, microgravity exposure. So, so this is a big the, Both the launch and reentry environment is an issue for you. Uh, yes, this is this is a, the, the issue, but only if you, if you don't preserve yourself. So at first they experience, of course, the hypergravity that leads to some of the physiological and biochemical responses but if you can preserve yourselves it's it's a good way to do it thank you yeah thank you it was a great question actually i think richard raised hand richard go yeah ahead. thank you um so yeah i have so many questions um i i've 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 been part of uh, six different stem cell experiments to ISS, uh, actually seven, seven, uh, six on six on ISS through shuttle and uh, one through um, CRS-20. And I, I mean, I, I will definitely be wanting to talk to you, Yaroslav, more in the future. Um, I, I, want, I guess the main, the main question I have is, are you a technological facilitator or do you actually run some of these experiments yourself with a view to developing a biological product that is uh, saleable? Yeah, this is a great question. Thank you, Richard. I will be happy to also keep in touch in future. And to answer your question, uh, currently our business model is to create only um, the facilities for microgravity research, for biologists to use them. And later on, as we grow, we aiming to establish our own R&D facilities on commercial space stations to do all, our own research to help uh, pharmaceutical companies to develop the, their drugs, for example, and then get the revenues from, from the drugs themselves. But uh, for now, it's um, not very feasible business model, so we are just focusing on um, yeah, the services. Okay. Yeah, because... Um... I spent two years uh, working on Dragon Lab at SpaceX, and uh, a lot of what we were doing was looking at all the different types of payloads that we would put up on a free-flying microgravity commercial commercial lab that didn't go to station. So we had a little bit more wiggle room uh, where you know we didn't have to jump through hoops, uh, NASA hoops, to get on station, which is is, is substantial. Um, and to the previous gentleman's question, the G load on a Dragon or a Soyuz is fairly substantial. That's why we're looking forward to the Dream Chaser having a little bit more of a benign uh, G-load on the way back um, because, yes, it does tend to have a deleterious effect on delicate cells. Um, were you aware of some of the work that was done on the last Columbia flight by Dave Wolf and his team when they were growing um, cancer? They were trying to grow in vitro prostate tumors uh, in a revolving wall bioreactor on the ground as a control. And then they had one on orbit on the Columbia. Um, and uh, the, the ones on the ground, they were able to develop these kind of a lot of microblastules about less than a, 
less than a uh, millimeter across, but on station or on, sorry, on the shuttle, they were able to create a 15 centimeter uh, tumor. Wow, 15 really? centimeter long tumor. Uh, that, that's in the record from that flight. Um, and also I noticed you said the Merck had done some of the protein crystal growth stuff. And it was, I, I think some of the, what you might've mentioned was done by Corning before they were acquired by Merck. And that was an experiment that was on, it was an interferon experiment, protein crystal growth on Columbia that survived the crash to the ground. And they were able to take that out of solution from the recovered uh, experiment that crashed in Texas. And that's what I believe was used to make a, um, a hepatitis C um, vaccine. Uh, but NASA will never talk about it because it's proprietary information. And so, you know, when we ask what, why are astronauts risking their lives? It's because of that, but NASA's not allowed to speak about it. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of really cool science that's been done and there's so much more that we need to do. And I'm very much in favor of what you're doing. I think it's brilliant. It's fantastic. I guess what my last question, apologies, what's your footprint in the United States and who are your investors? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, currently we are supported by grants and uh, we are representing the mostly uh, we have the office only in Germany and we are yeah basically aiming to also establish our own office in the US and we just have uh, people who are supervising us from, from 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 the US and people who are part of our team so for example Alina Varonina she's here she's our uh, main business developer and uh, yeah, as we grow, we wanted we want to go into the U.S. as well. Uh, it was a great uh, point that you 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 mentioned. Thank you so much. I'm I'm really interested in um, the cancer um, prostate cancer experiment. Did they have the good viability inside the 3D cell aggregate? Because one of the issues is like uh, yes, you can get a good spheroid that is complex and is big. And it resembles uh, overall the same uh, like cells that are can be found also in organ, but the cells inside and the transcriptomic level, so how the cells communicate between each other, is very different from from the real uh, model. So what what is actually we are aiming to do is to preserve the cells that are inside the aggregates that have less nutrients. Less, less oxygen supply to not die out and have a good communication with outer layers of the 3D cell aggregate. And this is like a stepping point. This is like a, a step stone that, that we are aiming to um, to change with our microfluidic systems. This is a very good point. Thank you. Yep. Okay, thank you, Richard. Uh... Uh, Alok, I think you are online. Dr. Albrecht, uh, do you want to speak up? Yes, hi, thank you. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, hi. Um, this is fascinating research. Um, I have very limited understanding of space medicine, some background in biomedical research, but I was just wondering if um, different types of uh, space you know, cosmic radiation can um, affect the results that you're um, assessing with your microgravity experiments. It would seem certainly for bio, biological agents that might be more relevant, but I don't know what the, you know, what the, um, what the research looks like in terms of 
evaluating uh, microgravity and radiation in concert. I know that they are kind of the two biggies when people talk about human survival in space. So I was just wondering if, if you could shed any light on that. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, it's a great question, actually. It's a, it's a question that uh, I think Davon uh, can answer better than me. Uh, and um, basically, you have different um, exposures of, of radiation. So I think it will be a part of the Davon presentation as well. I just I don't want to dive into depths into it. He, he will cover it better. But um, when you are present on the low Earth orbit, you have not the you you don't have such a high radiation exposure inside the international space station so it's physiologically um our our physiology can withstand it so we don't see any uh substantial increasement in the mutations correct me if i'm wrong if we are on the low earth orbit and we have uh, the protection of the uh from the radiation so we have some um some some radiational shield but if you go into outer space if you go to the moon mars or deep space you have uh, less and less protection from the radiation and then uh, it certainly increases the mutational rate uh, the amount of uh, chromosomic aberrations and all of the uh, predispositions to cancer um, disorders and many more disorders uh, that are um, yeah related to radiation. So this is a good point. But on the lowest orbit, um, it's not that uh, harsh, the, the radiational uh, influence, especially on the 3D cell culture. Thank you. OK. Uh, oh. Oh, uh. Oh, very good. So can start and you stay a little bit longer when you are talking about the speed. Sorry, I didn't hear the last the last sentence. No, no, I mean, uh, uh, can you stay a little bit longer, or you have to go? Uh, yeah, I will. I will be happy to stay for for the next talk, but unfortunately, then I have to leave because I have my flight soon. Yeah, because I think uh, because Alina is here, and uh, for your company, uh, uh, for whole picture, in fact, uh, she after you she uh, present her um her, her talk, uh, so then people can have the whole picture. Uh, for the operation here. So Alina, so you, you're ready? So let me get, get your file. Uh, so have you email? Oh. Hmm? We have a link. Oh, very good. You can type it here. Go ahead. I sent it to your email. Oh, is it? oh sorry. That's okay. All right. Oh, because people online cannot see it. Uh, so we have oh. to share your share. Um, can you see it? Um, let me see. Yes, perfect. You can see it, right? Okay, very good. Let's see. Now, if you do this, well, I guess it's fine. You just have to 
minimize this. Mm -hmm. So you just if you need uh, do you need a like a laser pointer or something? Oh fine. Fine. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Firstly, good morning. Then thank you, everyone, for coming here this morning and dedicating your time to listening to our lecture and exploring more about our company. And thank you, Kim, for letting us to do this lecture. It's our kind of first experience for doing a lecture at the university. So let's get started. My presentation is going to be different from Yaroslav because I'm going to be elaborating not just about our company, but uh, just the importance of biomedical research in space for anyone who is not uh, probably in biomedical field or who is uh, entrepreneur, startup developer, who are just interested to uh, explore more about this topic and learn why it's important to uh, do this research in low Earth orbit. Thank you. I'm gonna start with my career. So I started career as a scientist at 12 when I, when I wrote my first scientific work. And then I became the member of Junior Academy of Sciences of Ukraine at 13 years old. Currently I'm 17 and I recently became scientist at New York Academy of Sciences and I'm also Chief Business Development Officer at Spaceboss. So I'm graduating from a high school here in Los Angeles and I moved from Ukraine three years ago. And it's an honor for me to, part of, to be a part of Spacebot because we already made a lot of improvements. And the first picture you can see me participating in his pal, uh, challenge on ASCAN conference uh, where we met this Kim. And then uh, on the second picture and the third picture is uh, what I'm doing besides Spacebot or what I was doing. So that's me a speaker also in Central Asia, uh, about I was speaking about my third scientific work, which was dedicated to energy recuperation equipment. And on the middle picture is me with uh, Deputy Minister of Education and Science of Ukraine, who was, uh, I was honored to meet him because of my career, and he really wanted to talk to me and say thank you for everything that I'm doing. And right now we're gonna dive into importance of biomedical research. So there are tons of things that you can actually do uh, with technology that we are introducing in Spacebox. I'm, I'm just gonna name some of them, but that's also not a limit. So for example, product personalization, which Yaroslav talked about, cell cultures, uh, microbial behavior, drug delivery, um, drug delivery system, immune system, pharmacodynamics, cancer research, uh, drug screening and testing, molecular biology and gene expression, and on the picture, you can also see what biology you can do with lab and chick technology, which I'm going to talk the, uh, later on, and the chemistry. And here you can see a picture of uh, a process of uh, protein crystallization. Uh, so lab on chip technology is the main technology that we use at Spacebox, which allows us to research all of those topics and things that they count on. It was introduced in the 80s in the US and researchers made a concept of lab on chip in order to um, make a revolutionary diagnostic tool. Firstly, it was created for manipulation with small volumes of fluids and liquids, but later on it was introduced for drug development. Uh, These compact systems can be adapted for space missions to conduct a variety of experiments in microgravity conditions. 
facilitating research across multiple areas related to drug development. LabOneChip is a dream to integrate into a single chip thousands of biomedical operations using a single drop of blood from the patients to precisely diagnose potential diseases. LabOneChip provides the whole new world for opportunities of DNA and RNA sequencing. The first human genome project took years and required hundreds of scientists of their work. Today, by integrating an array of DNA probes into LabOneChip, we can sequence genomes thousands of times faster. Moreover, nanopore uh, nano technologies, which is still needed to be optimized, hold great potential in the future for being such faster for genome sequencing. Platforms are being developed for testing long and short fragment gene uh, detections, single base uh, substitutions and intersections, and pathogen-specific DNA sequences. It will take a long time to describe all currently ongoing research uh, of nano uh, microfluidic lab or lab on chip technology. It's enough to say the contemporary research lab on chip technology focused on three main aspects. The commercialization of lab on chip, including the adaptation of, of fabrication processes, the design of specific service treatments and flow control systems. The second one is parallelization of the maximum number of biological operations integrated on the same chip. And the third one, fundamental research on high potential impact technologies, such as DNA breeding through nano force. Uh, and then I'm gonna talk about how actually we can uh, make this research happen. So we can test our experiment or, or hypothesis on a traditional microgravity platforms, including drop towers, parabolic flights, sounding rockets, short duration orbital platforms, and long duration orbital platforms. I'm gonna briefly talk to you about, about each of them. So um, the first one is parabolic flights and sounding rockets. Uh, parabolic flights uh, reach an altitude of, a, of at least uh, three kilometers and provide microgravity for up to 25 seconds. And of course, it has parabolic trajectory. Sounded rockets. A two-stage sounding rocket can achieve peak altitudes over 400 kilometers to attain for five to six minutes in microgravity, level of 10 uh, in the power of minus four G. Drop towers and random positioning machines. The drop towers are vertical structures that allow free fall of payloads to generate microgravity conditions, the duration of which is determined by the tower height. Uh, the 10 to power of minus three G microgravity level that could initially be achieved has been uh, improved to the current level of 10 in the power of minus five G of the most drop towers using techniques to counter the effect of acceleration. The random positioning machine is a two axis version of a clinostat which has been used for microgravity simulation and hardware testing. These machines randomly changed the orientation of the experiment, effectively averaging out the gravitational pullover. The microgravity is in range of uh, 10 to the power of minus two to 10 to the power of minus three G. Uh, experiments, the statistics of experiments on ISS is truly fascinating. So just I'm gonna read uh, many of the countries who 
uh, made some kind of biomedical research on ISS. The International Space Station is the largest scientific technological international uh, cooperative program worldwide. The ISS is based on the partnership between USA, NASA, Canada, Canadian Space Energy uh, Agency, European countries, the European Space Agency, Russia, Roscosmos, and Japan, Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency. For more than 18 years, over 230 people from 18 countries have lived and worked continuously on board of ISS, conducting uh, 2,400 research projects. Uh, over 200 new experience will be launched in 20, uh, was launched in 2019. And um, more than one uh, 1,200 microgravity-related patents were granted between 1981 and 2017, which is truly impressive because that shows that people actually uh, care about microgravity research and experiments on low Earth orbit. And um, of course, there is research being done from private companies who are also in a partnership of with ISS which are space tango. Uh, so they do tango labs that we can take, uh, that I will talk later on. And uh, space application services with ice cubes. Uh, usually they provide services of one U CubeSage uh, models, which allow us to uh, conduct, not just test the hypothesis, but conduct a whole research on low earth orbit. And here you can see uh, one U cubes, uh, CubeSage uh, of space tango. Those are microgravity platforms that allow us, as I said, not just to test, but to also conduct an experiment. And in Spacebox, we are, uh, have a specialty in two of those groups, which are satellites and free flyers. Uh, and you can also see uh, different types of satellites, which are uh, biomedical research are mostly done on CubeSat. But of course, it depends on uh, complexity of research. And I want to talk about two space missions which are truly fascinating from my point. One is space mission uh, done by Space Tango. And uh, it's one of our advisors, Dr. Alison Mayotri, that already Yaroslav talked about. Uh, he done uh, organoid research with uh, Eric Vire, studied human brain organoids in space. This mission was done in 2019, and recently this year they done a uh, another, mission, uh, another mission on organoid uh, brain research, uh, but they didn't get uh, yeah, data on it. And the second experience that I want to talk about is Ketruda Barnork, which Yaroslav elaborated on. And uh, I think Yaroslav said everything that you need to know about it. So they crystallized the protein, uh, which is used to uh, treat several types of cancer. And they just show the, the limit of the potential that uh, research on low Earth orbit has because they generated $7 billion in revenue, which is they totally commercialized uh, the whole biomedical market. I hope you enjoyed and uh, explored something new for yourself. And this is how I was explained when I came to the company from Yaroslav. So I made it very easy so anyone can understand from a physics a physicist to life scientist. And thank you so much. If you have any questions, please uh, ask. Thank you, Alina, just for your presentation. Um,
So, uh, so what did you present in Ascent? Is a similar topic, or you, did you say something more in Ascent? Uh, I said mostly everything that Yaroslav said. So it was it was mostly about the company. Oh. It was five minute pitch about our company and what services do we provide. But this is just a generalized presentation about yeah about what company do. Um, so any question for folks people or online? So here I have a quick question. Uh, the oh. um, you're showing a mix of uh, human tended and automated uh, experiments. Uh, could uh, do you have any? Uh, well, uh, how much value did the, does the human tended um, add to it, if any? Uh, sorry, can you repeat your question? Because I think because of the internet, I couldn't hear. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, you, you showed a variety of um, you know human tended experiments with an astronaut on, on board a, uh, the ISS. I guess most of it, maybe some of it, was in the shuttle. Um, nowadays, how do you see that going in the future? Will we still want to have some human tended experiments, or can they mostly be? Uh, automated or ground controlled? Uh, thank you for this question. It's truly important because right now the main problem of the market is autonomously and the cost. Uh, it's too expensive to send an astronaut on the board. And uh, if it would be automated, of course, it would solve a lot of problems. So what we are doing in Spacebox, we are trying to make our system fully autonomous. And we are hoping for, there are a lot of uh, companies who are willing to build private space, uh, private space station like Axiom Space uh, and who would be truly interested in, of course, taking care of our experiment autonomously. So I believe the future in the space is a future of biomedical research. Uh, it's autonomous. Uh, but um, of course, we can get rid of, we can fully get rid of uh, humans because there are a lot of complex experiments that require uh, human work. Can I just jump, jump in? Um, thank you so much for uh, elaboration, Alina. Uh, yeah, you said everything that, uh, <laughs> that that is important about uh, automation. Uh, I think just one small add-on is when we go and think about the future and we see the NASA roadmap, um, we see more and more going to deep space not only moon and Mars experiment, but also deep space experiments that uh, basically don't allow uh, currently human and um, human space flights. So it, it certainly won't be uh, yeah, carried out by humans. So you need some autonomous approaches to carry out the whole pipeline of experiments from the beginning till the end with, uh, with automated solutions. And this is something that we are seeing us in the future, going more into deep space and exploring more in, with our automated approaches. Very good. So, Yaroslav, I know you are going to uh, present the conversation, and uh, Alina is here in local. Uh, so, because I want to really want to connect you with uh, Bridger. Bridger, are you still online? Yes, I'm still online. Okay, 
Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, I had a I had a question about the protein crystal growth um, side of things. Uh, one of the things I found um, when I was working at SpaceX was that there seemed to be a window of opportunity for protein crystal growth on orbit. Uh, the original reasons for growing the protein crystals on orbit is that you could grow bigger protein crystals. They grew much larger. And so therefore, with the uh, ability to image the protein uh, down to you know 50 or 60 um, um, nanometers back then, uh, you, you know you were able to you were able to you couldn't see those smaller proteins like urokinase or, or interferon. And so they would try and grow them bigger to get them bigger than the 50 um, uh, nanometers. But then the new X-ray synchrotrons were coming on online and they were getting us down to much, much smaller um, uh, nanometers in terms of, of how we could image those pro proteins. Um, and so I saw that as a kind of a window of opportunity that now you can get down to those five and six nanometers However, you can still grow more pure crystals in space. And I'm wondering if you guys see that as the main killer app, as opposed to just trying to image the shape of the protein. I think that's mostly a question for Yaroslav because he's our scientific side. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, this is a great point, and this is something that we definitely see a large gap. So the, the purity of the crystals that we can get. Uh, I think uh, the, the previous experiment by that, that was done by Merck and uh, also Sanofi, uh, this dairy antibody, it was uh, kind of cutting edge um, technology that they use. Uh, definitely, uh, the purity of the of the protein is is important and we are collaborating mostly with uh, research institutes from Dusseldorf, from, from, from Germany, that are doing uh, crystallography uh, on the regular basis. And they have approaches like a hanging drop um, approach, for example, that gives uh, a nice purity if you get uh, a proper conditions for the protein folding. So yeah, the, the, the purity is definitely the key point here. Oh, okay, thank you, Richard. Uh, so you are welcome to ask more questions after, but uh, since Aristotle has to be, so Richard, can you say something about you and uh, what you're doing regarding through this uh, training for a startup company? Sure, yes, happy to. Um, so uh, thank you, Yaroslav and Alina, for, for that uh, very, very um, uh, useful uh, presentation, I think. Uh, where, where we may be able to help is with the U.S. expansion. So um, I was overseeing a program with uh, Starburst Aerospace along with UCLA where we are um, taking uh, small uh, cohorts of companies, usually eight to ten companies, through an accelerator program that is completely free. Um, it is a 13-week program um, that is aimed at helping you uh, expand your team, connect with the government customer, um, explore more of the commercial side, and then connect with U.S. investors. Um, we ran uh, the last uh, cohort that we had uh, concluded this summer, so we ran that from May to July. Um, but uh, I know that there's definitely things coming online in the new year 
um, specifically in the space health vertical and in, in exploring more biomedicine. Um, so we'll, we'll love to stay in touch with you guys to see maybe how we can support you guys uh, going forward with that. Definitely. Thank you, Briar, from for bringing this up. Yeah, uh, we will be happy to, to have a follow-up call with you. Thank Absolutely. You. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank you for this proposition. I'm always in LA, happy to, you know, contribute to your program. So thank you. Yeah, that's fine, Bria. I was hoping Bria uh, can be here today. Um, but we also have Amani. Uh, she could be also related to the company that started coming. Do you want to say a few words? Oh, you know, I'm actually, this is all very new to me. I, uh, I work in an investment management firm and follow some of these larger cap pharma companies like Eli Lilly and Mark. And so um, it's not something they talk about a lot publicly. So this is just so interesting to hear that Keytruda, a very um, blockbuster drug, was um, aided by this. So I'm very new to this topic, but I'm really happy to be here and I've learned so much. So thank you so much. Yeah, very good. So we can also uh, connect each other and see if it can work out. But nothing involved with this kind of commercialization is worth for. So uh, we have Deborah here. So Deborah, do you want to say a few words about what you and about what you do? Well, thank you. And hello, everyone. Um, the, uh, I'm with the South Bay Workforce Investment Board located in Hawthorne. Uh, so now everybody knows what Hawthorne is thanks to SpaceX. Um, but uh, we've been around for a long time. We're a 501c3, and there's a small group of us that are called special projects. And what we have been doing is following the, the hot industries, if you will, and space is certainly one of them, uh, along with healthcare and bio um, to our what we call our flex program. So you may have heard of Aeroflex, Bioflex, and now we have Spaceflex. It really started because the White House um, did, I think it was in January 21. Um, the vice president's office held, was held a convening of a number of uh, space slash aerospace companies, but those that were working in space, to find out how they could build the space technical workforce. And, um, and they realized that the only way they're going to get anywhere is to build a, is to go out into the country. And so they established regions, <clears throat> excuse me, starting with three, Florida being the first region, uh, Southern California being the second, and the kind of central um, New Orleans, Texas area as the third, and now they're looking at the Colorado area and the mid-Atlantic. And what, our, what the goal is is to bring together companies that are that need workforce um, from a technician level up and to get together and say, what can we do better together to develop a workforce and a pipeline and what do we need to do to help education, to help um, people know about space occupations and career pathways. What can we do as a team that maybe we can't do as well one-on-one? -on -one? So that's what we are doing. If you are interested in being part of this group, please let us know. Um, we, we are expanding the group. There were about, about 10 companies that came to the first convening last March. And then we will be, and we've had other one-on-one -on -one meetings to really get to your needs. And then uh, we are anticipating a second meeting, most likely held by Edmund Grumman in next March. Excellent. And I know uh, Mr. Uh, John Beza online uh, seems to be also uh, uh, Richard, I'll get back to you. Uh, uh, John Beza, you're supposed to be here uh, in person, but if you're online, do you want to say a few words? 
I see you, you seem to be also involved with some kind of workforce issues. John, you have the mic. You are welcome to speak out. Mr. Perezza, you want to say something? Or uh, uh, Ms. McCoy? All right, we can get back to you when you are ready if you want to say something. So, uh, uh, so uh, I think that's good. So I will try to make some connection for you, you guys. So thank you, Arisla. Thank you, Alina. Appreciate it. Wonderful presentation. Thank you. Uh, so we will so we'll be moving to the uh, next talk by Dr. Mundi. Um, let's see. Yeah, I'm sorry. Thank you so much. I have to catch my flight in two hours, so I have to go. Thank I you see. all. Uh, yeah, let's stay in touch and uh, have a great uh, day. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Aristotle. Stay in touch. Uh, so let me see where is. Okay, Dr. Landin is here. Let me um, call you uh, here. Okay, uh, do you want to put up your uh, PowerPoint? Do you... Yes, can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, let me, I'll just share my screen. Yeah, share, share your screen. And then maybe, uh, I don't know if I, yeah, someone may need to moderate the, the chat questions at some point. Yeah, no problem. Um, uh, so the next talk is by uh, Dr. Landin, uh, Devon Landin. Uh, he is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Memorial Sloan uh, Catholic Cancer Center. Uh, he completes training in City, of New, uh, City Uni University of New York Graduate Center. Uh, then he, at that time, he examined DNA re uh, replication speed in triple negative breast cancers, operating mutant P53 proteins. Uh, right now, he focused primarily on DNA repair mechanisms. And uh, uh, he's also doing this uh, radio sensitization of HPV plus uh, cancers and uh, in radio uh, protection for astronauts during uh, long-term spaceflight mission. Uh, so go ahead, Dr. Lundin. Well, thank you very much for a great introduction and for the AIAA for hosting me. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm very proud to talk about my project today. Uh, modulating the DNA repair response to shield astronauts from cancer. So I was also uh, very fortunate to be at the Ascend meeting in October, and uh, I was able to uh, win the Humans in Space Challenge on the research side, uh, and that was hosted by Boryung, Axiom, and Aurelia. So if you can uh, if you can see me, I've got the Axiom station behind me. So that's my my personal favorite for now because they're uh, funding my research, but. You know, any company that wants to fund my research, I'm happy to put your space station behind me when I when I give talks. It's <laughs> uh, good, Dr. Landin. Can you close? Uh, I think there is a panel in the. Oh room sure. Because it's uh, blocking your slides. Sure. Sorry about that. How's that? No, there's one in the middle too. Oh well, it should go away. Yep, there we go. So you are working okay? in Korea. You're working in this Korean company. Oh, yes, yes. A private equity group has helped to, to fund the project that I'm very excited to share with you. Very good. They were in a sense. So uh, Alina and yeah. I were in Vietnam. Very good. Yes, I'm a very big fan. 
So let's see. You may have heard the universe is expanding. And uh, that's true both in the physical sense and in the sense of space research and uh, development, right? So you all probably know, since you're here, about the Artemis missions. Uh, Artemis 1 flew in 2022. Hopefully Artemis 2 flies in 2024. Uh, we should have an Artemis 3 crewed lunar landing, hopefully uh, no earlier than 2025, but hopefully not too much later either. And then we've got uh, plans, uh, we as in NASA, humanity, have plans for Artemis 4 and beyond to have a sustained lunar presence throughout the 2030s. Beyond that, there's plenty of uh, American commercial space stations which are planned. So the International Space Station has been great to us and is entering the final phase of its life. So it's set to be decommissioned sometime in the 2030s. And we've got all kinds of uh, replacements uh, in theory lined up. Orbital Reef, Axiom Station, as I mentioned, my personal favorite, uh, several others, Northrop Grumman, uh, Star Lab, and uh, as, of course, the uh, Lunar Gateway, which is intended uh, as part of the Artemis missions to, to help our uh, presence around the moon. We also just launched uh, uh, in uh, at the end of October, a mission to Psyche, uh, NASA's first mission to a, a mostly met metallic asteroid. And this asteroid is allegedly worth $10 quintillion. So I'm not an economist. I'm a scientist, as you'll see. So I wanted to include that that uh, valuation is from Business Insider. And uh, as far as I understand it, uh, that is basically more than the entire global GDP. So I'm sure that that number is not really, <laughs> I don't really know how that works, particularly how supply and demand works. But that's all to say that this is really big business and we're trying to figure out how to do all these incredible things. And of course, Artemis is meant to be a gateway to Mars. Right. And so all of the technology development going towards this is for both uh, unmanned and manned missions to Mars. Since 1957, we see an increase in global spacecraft launch attempts, which includes kind of a release of satellites. And uh, this data goes up to 2021, but 2022 and 2023 were also record years. So we have really big human spaceflight ambitions, but there's a big barrier to all of these problems. The fundamental problem, as I see it, is that cosmic radiation exists uh, outside of low Earth orbit, as Yaroslav mentioned, and increases the uh, cancer risk for our astronauts and limits our ability to explore space. So to give you a sense of kind of what this means and, and a sense of scale, the average American, maybe some of you sitting in the Artesia library, over the course of 12 months, get a radiation dose of about six millisieverts. Uh, if you go out to, let's say, my favorite, the Axiom Commercial Space Station for 12 months, you get about 20 times that dose, up to about 180 millisieverts. If we uh, succeed in developing the Lunar Gateway and we have a 12-month mission to Lunar Gateway, you've got 200 to 500 millisieverts that will be experienced by our astronauts. And a Mars mission, uh, which is at a minimum 21 months, probably much longer than 21 months, uh, you'll have a radiation dose somewhere between 400 and 900 millisieverts, depending on uh, the solar activity at the time of the mission. And so these are huge amounts of radiation. And in particular, this 400 to 900 millisievert projected dose is the entire lifetime dose that a human is uh, allowed to, to experience, essentially. And you'll receive that in less than two years. So this is a huge problem. But how does this radiation specifically affect us? 
There's also, uh, so I'm discussing the, the quantity of this radiation, but there's also the problem of the quality of the radiation. And so in particular, if you think, uh, if you think back to uh, maybe chemistry, uh, chemistry one, or whenever you've last looked at the electromagnetic radiation spectrum, maybe this is the first time, uh, you'll see that on the left-hand side, non-ionizing radiation is generally very low energy, right? So things like radio waves, uh, 5G in your cell phone, as much as some people maybe believe otherwise, actually very low energy and, and does not harm your cells. And on the right side, you have ionizing radiation, much higher energy, right? including ultraviolet when you get those sunburns uh, from being out in the, in the LA sun too long. X-rays whenever you go to the dentist, right? And, and we usually worry about those uh, as your, your highest source of, of radiation um, as a, a normal citizen on Earth. Then you've got gamma rays, and all the way on the right, we have cosmic rays. And so each of these numbers uh, in, in the quantum energy section are increasing by, uh, by factors of, of 10, basically. And so an order of magnitude is 10 times more, right? And so the lowest end of, of x-rays, you've got 10 to the 2. And then on the highest end of cosmic rays, 10 to the 12. So it's many, 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 many more times, about 100,000 times more powerful than those x-rays that you worry about or the, the ultraviolet at the beach. So uh, not only is the quantity of radiation much higher in, in deep space, but the quality of that radiation is, is also very high. And so what does this do to our cells and our DNA? So we have here pictured in uh, B and C, these are two individual uh, mammalian cells. And so the, what's pictured is the nucleus and the green dots are something called gamma H2AX, which is a marker for DNA damage and in general, tells you when your cell is experiencing DNA damage or double strand breaks. Uh, and so when cells are hit with a gamma ray, you see these little dots or something that we call puncta. And it's almost like uh, bouncing ping pong balls off the nucleus of the cell. Maybe they'll leave a little bit of a dent uh, and it certainly causes damage. But when you look at something like a heavy ion particle, which is much uh, similar to energy as cosmic rays, what you get are these long tracks, linear tracks. So rather than a ping pong ball, it's more like a cannonball going through the nucleus of the cell. And all along the way, as these heavy ions go through the DNA, they're essentially shattering the, the molecule and creating very complex DNA breaks that are very difficult for the cells to deal with. And so gamma rays, pretty bad. Cosmic rays, really bad. So that's the kind of the takeaway from this slide if you are a less technical person. <laughs> So how does this relate to increased cancer risk, getting all of this damage to our DNA? Well, uh, this is a, a, a very oversimplified explanation of sort of the theory of cancer and, and mutation accumulation, but essentially more mutations equals more cancer. Uh, it's not exactly true, but uh, it'll, it'll help us in this talk today. And in general, what you see is you need accumulations of mutations in a single cell. So you can get a mutation in a cell and it can replicate and live its life totally fine with that one mutation, no problem. Or maybe you're out in the sun a little bit too long or you're on the Axiom space station, you get some cell damage, you get a second mutation, third mutation, a fourth mutation and beyond. And this is when we start getting into dangerous uh, areas of, of the development of cancer. And so this can be depicted kind of on this graph over time. You've got age on the x-axis and just sort of uh, an intensity scale on the y-axis. 
And you can see that as you start aging very quickly, your stem cells stop dividing and your mutation rate jumps up. Okay. And as you live your life, you're accumulating mutations and eventually you cross a threshold where your cancer incidence uh, becomes uh, more significant. The, the odds of you getting cancer are much higher. And so essentially what we're trying to do is understand how mutation rates accumulate in space and how we can potentially lower the mutation accumulation for astronauts and push back this cancer incidence rate to either be later in life or not at all. And so you might be wondering, why is this relationship not linear, right? Why does one mutation not equal one cancer? Well, first we have this whole idea that you need mu multiple mutations in a single particular cell, uh, but also there are things going on in the cell like DNA repair, which is something that I'm very uh, excited and fascinated about, and I will tell you now. So if you're not technical, uh, I'm very sorry. Hang on, this will be over in hopefully a minute or two. <laughs> and uh, if you are technical, hopefully this isn't too too much. But when, when you experience a DNA double-strand break in cells, uh, DNA repair can occur through several different mechanisms. Uh, one of the way, the most the easiest way to explain is a, is a repair function called non-homologous N-joining or NHEJ, where the cell will basically look at a break uh, send a bunch of proteins to grab the two ends and essentially join them together. This is a very error-prone process and leads to large deletions and mutations. A little bit harder to explain is uh, homologous recombination. So this is a very accurate way that a cell can repair DNA. And uh, essentially what it does is uh, looks at other DNA in the cell that has the same sequence as where the break was and around the break and it basically copies it. So it's kind of like, you know, maybe back when you were in your chemistry one class and you didn't know the answer and you looked over to cheat off of your lab partner's paper. So the cell basically looks at a different copy of DNA that's identical, copies it down and fixes the repair accurately. But this can only happen in very limited time points in the cell's life. And then we've got alternative end joining, which is basically somewhere in between where cells can sort of look around and see chunks of DNA that look the same, but maybe the teacher's walking around and you don't want to look too long. And so it's kind of a hybrid of these two where it copies a little bit and then it kind of rams some together. And, uh, and this is also an inaccurate uh, version of repair that results in small deletions and small mutations. Now, obviously, very fast and, and very oversimplified, but I think hopefully this helps you understand kind of where we're coming from. So why do we need to know this information? How can we use this information to prevent cancer in astronauts? Well, we wanna help cells choose the right DNA repair pathway when they're hit with cosmic radiation, or at least block the pathways that are gonna to lead to more mutations because more mutations equals more cancer, okay? Luckily for us, uh, several studies have shown that high energy particles hitting cells actually deactivate this NHEJ pathway, which is probably the biggest uh, potential problem. And it just gets shut off in response to really high energy particles. We don't really know why, <laughs> uh, but we have seen over and over that that's the case. And so we're left with these two pathways, homologous recombination, accurate, but only a certain amount of time, and alternative end joining, inaccurate, and can be used at different phases uh, as well. So most of the rest of the talk is gonna be focused on alternative end joining and trying to block this pathway. And the way that we're gonna do that 
is focus on the star of the show, a protein called polymerase theta, or POLQ for short. And so POLQ is the main effector protein that drives alternative end joining. So we're going to try to stop polymerase theta from functioning so we can stop alternative end joining and result in essentially only homologous recombination and accurate form of repair for our astronauts. So the project that uh, was recently funded by, uh, by Axiom and others, uh, we have this research question. If we inhibit polymerase theta, POLQ, can we reduce cancer risk and mutation rate following exposure to cosmic radiation? So a quick summary, if you zoned out for the last five minutes, cosmic rays plus alternative end joining equals high cancer risk. And cosmic rays minus alternative end joining, we think, we hope, results in reduced cancer risk. So the way that we're going to test this idea is use a drug called ART558. It's a polymerase theta inhibitor. Uh, it has a very nice uh, IC50, if that uh, you know means anything to you. And uh, we're excited to, to see whether this uh, results in less mutations after cosmic radiation. So how are we going to do that? We are first going to perform a ground study uh, using cells in a dish. So we've uh, partnered with Columbia University. They have a radiation facility that can do full spectrum galactic cosmic ray simulation, which is a mouthful, but very cool to say. And uh, they essentially are using a linear particle accelerator to uh, do a, a multi-spectrum radiation beam that uh, will mimic uh, space radiation. And they've shown it, that it does that pretty reliably, similar to the uh, NASA a space radiation lab on uh, at Brookhaven. So we'll take our cells, we'll have some that have no drug and some we will treat with our polymerase theta inhibitor, expose them to galactic cosmic ray simulation. And our readout for genomic integrity is threefold and I'll get into this a little bit more, but essentially we'll look at cell survival. We'll take a look at large scale chromosomes. So the, the, we're zooming in a little bit to look at the structure of the chromosomes, and then we'll zoom in even more and do whole genome sequencing to get down to an individual base pair level of resolution. So just a, a quick example for the non-biologists, what do these experiments look like in general? Uh, cell survival assays look something like this. This does not belong to me, but I found it on the internet and it's a great example. So this particular group uh, is increasing the amount of radiation, zero gray up to eight gray on these two different uh, genetic conditions. And all the purple dots you see is a cluster of cells called a colony. And so you can count the number of colonies and that's essentially uh, you're able to track cell survival in this way. And so you can see as radiation increases, the amount of purple dots decrease. And so the survival of these cells is decreasing. And in this particular example, they have some kind of genetic manipulation. They've knocked out something called MALAT1, and that results in more killing than cells that do not have that gene knocked out. So we're hoping to essentially, uh, you know, uh, generate data of this nature using our drug rather than a genetic knockout. Another thing I'm very excited about is called chromosome painting or directional genomic hybridization. So we're working with a company called Chromatid Inc. Uh, and they do this directional genomic hybridization. And essentially what that means, they've got these chromosome paints where you can hybridize, it's essentially a whole genome fish 
uh, where you're hybridizing tiny DNA probes all the way across a chromosome. And they can do this for all 23 chromosome pairs. And you can essentially measure whether there are any large scale structural changes going on in the DNA as a result of radiation. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Uh, as an example, this was on chromosome three. And you can see that the, the paint is continuous here, only broken by the centromere, which is normal. And uh, in a damaged chromosome, you can see a particular lesion called an inversion. So you've got the paint continuous, and then all of a sudden it ends up on the other chromosome arm before reverting back. And so this is a particular type of damage that can be read out by chromosome painting, among many others. So we're very excited about this type of analysis. Uh, and finally, whole genome sequencing. We're very interested in, in looking at individual base pairs of the DNA in these cells and seeing what changes are, are happening. So we'll have, a, you know, of course, a reference genome for our cells of interest, the DK6 cells, and cells that get radiation plus and minus the drug. We'll have uh, DNA sequencing information about you know, what, what exactly is happening down to the base pair, which is, which is really great high-resolution data. And beyond that, we can also detect structural variants uh, in a very similar way to the chromosome painting, but two methods always better than one, especially if they kind of work in a slightly different way, to give you confidence that what you're seeing is, uh, is reproducible. And so uh, this whole genome sequencing can, can provide structural variation information on all sorts of damage like translocations, deletions, inversions, duplications, copy number variation, chromothripsis, uh, all, all sorts of... Uh, really interesting data that could come out of this. So we hope that our kind of multi-resolution readout will give us a really nice a, a nice sense of what's going on in the cells. So what, what could be gained from this project? What's the whole point of this? Uh, why have I uh, you know, gotten a little bit of money to try to do this? Well, we think that we're gonna be able to determine if polymerase theta inhibition reduces cancer risk following exposure to cosmic radiation. But beyond that as well, you know, this, this one particular drug is interesting, but we think that this methodology can be a really nice way to assess additional drugs that uh, either work in the same pathway or, or different DNA repair pathways, uh, anything that, that can really uh, modulate the, the genotoxic effect of the radiation, we think we would be able to, to read out using this methodology. Uh, we're hopeful to expand to some animal studies on Earth, on the space station, we'd love to do it, on the moon, you know, we'd love to do it. Uh, and overall, I think, you know, the, in general, uh, we'll broaden our understanding of DNA repair in response to cosmic rays and radiation. So the roadmap here, uh, we, our ground study that I uh, just described to you is being done in human cells at uh, basically the beginning of this next year, starting in the next couple of months. Uh, we're optimistic we can get, you know, maybe on a small satellite, a CubeSat uh, uh, or something like that, uh, either probably... The end of 2024 is maybe too optimistic, maybe 2025. And uh, and we think that, you know, when the Axiom station goes up, which is uh, so far scheduled for 2026, we hope that we can uh, run a trial on, on Axiom or any, you know, any commercial space station. And uh, we think that, you know, we could be fully operational for Lunar Gateway and Artemis 4 by 2028, which is just the, the timeline that NASA has set currently for Lunar Gateway, which may you know slip into the future. Um, so yeah, our team is based out of Memorial Sloan Kettering, led by myself and Dr. Daniel Higginson, who's a radiation oncologist there. Uh, we've got uh, funding from a, a bunch of different places, and and we're you know we're really excited to to do this work. 
Um, we've got, you know, our critical assets in particular, working with Columbia is going to be excellent. Chromatid, uh, all of the great facilities at, at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And so we're hoping that this project, uh, at least the, the early stages of it, can be done by summer 2024. And uh, yeah, that's that's been the talk. If you enjoyed the talk, I just want to plug a couple of other people. Uh, I don't get any sort of monetary benefit from this. I don't even think they know that I'm doing this. But if you enjoyed this talk or this topic or anything uh, about space, biology, et cetera, uh, I would love if you checked out Chris Mason. Dr. Chris Mason's at uh, Weill Cornell, and he just published a, a fantastic book called The Next 500 Years, Engineering Life to Reach New Worlds, all about genetic engineering of humans and bacteria to, to try to uh, help us get to other planets. Uh, Erica, Dr. Erica Hamden, the University of Arizona, I had the pleasure of meeting this past summer. Uh, she gives a great YouTube talk, What It Takes to Launch a Telescope. It's basically about um, resilience and science and what happens when things inevitably fail. Dr. Beth Shapiro at uh, UC Santa Cruz has written a book and given plenty of excellent lectures about how to clone a mammoth and the science of de-extinction. Uh, spoiler alert, we're not very close. And if you enjoyed the talk, please check out my LinkedIn here, giving you a QR code to, uh, to scan and check out. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. I uh, want to thank uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering for sponsoring the work, as well as Young, Axiom, the Aurelia Institute, uh, the Humans in Space Program, and of course, the AIAA for hosting me. So thank you, and I'll take any questions. Fantastic. Thank you, uh, Dr. Lundi. Uh, any questions here uh, in the Cindy uh, or online? Uh, I think John, Mr. Uh, Berza uh, asked a question. So John, do you want to speak out? You have the microphone. Yeah, so could you just discuss uh, the potential? Does this put drug potentially lessen the destruction from both cosmic solar radiation and galactic space radiation? And what's the, you know, what is the, you know, the differences between them? Yeah, sure. It, it's uh, thank you for the question. I think in general, um, so I'm much more of a of a of a cell biologist, but my rough understanding of the difference between the two is that is that there's a maybe um, I'm not sure how large, but there is a a large difference in terms of the energy between them. Uh, so my understanding is that solar radiation is more easily shielded against, and galactic cosmic rays are a much higher energy, more difficult to shield against, and so. Um, there are some pharmacological, uh, pharmacological interventions that we think will work. And on that end, while I while I can talk about it, uh, why don't we just use shielding? I think let me try to move this. Is a good is a is a reasonable question. As I'm saying, solar radiation is easier to shield. So it turns out cosmic rays, since they're so high energy, uh, not very easy to shield. So I've read in different places, you know, you need about 13 feet of lead. A shield from a cosmic ray or about a swimming pool full of water. Neither of those particularly easy to launch into space. And one problem as well with cosmic rays, um, I couldn't find a perfect image depicting this, but essentially if you don't shield a cosmic ray completely, what happens uh, as it hits Earth's atmosphere or, uh, or your shielding of choice, it will uh, fragment into basically many uh, versions of secondary radiation, almost like a shotgun shell. So anything behind that shielding is actually going to experience uh, more radiation uh, by, by surface area than you would otherwise. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a good question. And we think the drug will primarily function on galactic cosmic rays. 
Excellent question. Uh, I think Richard, raise hand. Richard, go ahead. Yeah, um, thanks, Devin. That um, you just explained really what I was going to ask because you don't really get GCRs until you get outside the Van Allen belt. I mean, the Apollo astronauts did have issues with flashes in their eye, in their retina, and I think potential lesions on their brains uh, that, that took place from these GCRs hitting them. Um, but I'm wondering if you have a spacecraft that's uh, aluminum out of shell, uh, you're possibly going to get that spallation anyway before it gets inside the, 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 the living accommodation. And I know that there are people working on it. Some people have been working with it on in the past. So is the damage, if you get a spallated GCR, is the damage similar than if you just get a solid whack from an iron ion? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question for sure. I think, um, I don't know that I, I don't know with total confidence, but I would say essentially the, the, the spallated, uh, the secondary radiation would look more like a gamma ray. So those particles are, they are slowed by, uh, by shielding, even though it's insufficient. The, the problem I think is that, uh, so you'll, I think you'll receive less damage in a singular instance but because of the of the spreading out of those particles, more cells are going to be affected, and so you know it's, uh, you know, I'm not quite sure how the math works out, but I, you know, more mutations equals more cancer in my silly uh, silly little saying, and so I think more cells getting hit with more particles actually could be worse uh, potentially, but I don't, there's no, I don't have any data for that. Thanks. Uh Thank you, Richard. I think Pedro, Pedro uh, Silverman. Uh, Mr. Silverman, you want to speak out? Sure. So I was wondering for the CubeSat experiment, uh, will you be able to get enough radiation for you to see an effect on the cells? Because it might be kind of hard to have the human cells last for more than a couple of days in orbit. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, and thank you, Dr. Silverman. <laughs> Good to see you. The, uh, the, the tracks that, that you see here, um, I, I think this experiment is done on a beam, but there are experiments that were done on Mir uh, using cells and, and they see these same uh, radiation tracks from GCRs. So I think, um, you know, I think the quick answer is, uh, is yes, I think we would, we would see the level of damage that, that we would need. And um, Dr. Erica Hamden uh, is an astrophysicist who launches, she was launched um, the Fireball satellite, and uh, she published a paper that, that talks about basically how many cosmic rays were hitting her um, telescope, uh, the Fireball telescope, and I was, it was, uh, I forget the exact number, I'll send you the paper later, but it was, uh, it was quite high, so I think, I think it's an odds game, but I think that uh, we would see sufficient damage, I mean, I hope, I hope that we do. <laughs> Actually, since Richard here, actually, uh, uh, I want to take for some of the uh, all the questions you mentioned. You mentioned Richard mentioned about the dream chaser, right? Dream chaser, the Sierra Nevada dream chaser, and to put a launch vehicle for possible biomedicine uh, uh, experiment. I'm speaking. Actually, you see, our section is called the Los Angeles and the Las Vegas section. So actually. Uh, our Las Vegas chapter people, Mr. Ma uh, Marky Waltman has been working uh, with the project of the Dream Chaser uh, to be launched from Florida or Vandenberg and landed in the uh, Las Vegas airport. Uh, 
uh, McAllen or Henry Airport. Uh, so that's an interesting possibility. Of course, he is focused more on space tourism, uh, but actually it could be a good potential. So if you like to work with our uh, Elevator Las Vegas chapter for this possibility, we'll be happy to make a connection. Uh, Okay, uh, yeah, yeah I'm just thank you. And the other thing, you know, actually, I many, many years ago, I used to work in the cancer center to support biophysics study. And they actually had also, uh, I, don't, I, I don't remember the detail, but some of the research was also talking about uh, this counter uh, radiation drugs. Uh, so for, for you, you, you just mentioned it's for different kind of radiation environments. So how fast is this? Is it kind of immediate remedy or is for like a vaccine for prevention, uh, what is, is, is the thing that you are working on? Is it for like injection or peel or, or is for a vaccination? Or is it meant for a treatment? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, we don't have all of the details worked out. My uh, So the, the drug is currently in a phase one clinical trial uh, for actually radio sensitization of tumors that have defects in homologous recombination, that pathway that we're trying to uh, increase and support. Uh, and so my understanding is that it's a, a pill um, that you would take uh, basically before radiation exposure so that the cells are sort of primed to, to make that decision once they're exposed to the cosmic radiation. Um, there's all sorts of uh, uh, questions that we have about that, including, you know, how many pills would you need to take? How many do you need to bring with you? Do, does the cosmic radiation itself impact the pills and how? Um, so, you know, we're excited to, to do the ground study and, and take this first step and just, just show that the drug has a, a radioprotective effect in this context. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in time, we'll, <laughs> we'll take the next step. And part of that is, is getting a pharmacist on board and trying to, to understand some of the better, finer details of that, because I don't have any sort of uh, pharmacy experience. Excellent. Uh, so, Kyle, uh, we might have some more questions here, but we have uh, 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 attendee here, right now. Uh, okay, what happened is, I think we're supposed to have the fourth speaker, Kimberly, but she cannot make it, and she belongs to also a group called the Girls for Space. And right now is from that organization, so she would like to uh, uh, kind of tell us briefly about herself and uh, uh, this organization. So right now, go ahead. You can mute your mic or even turn on your video if you like. Hmm. I guess she is not ready yet. Um, well, I have a question while we're waiting, if that's okay. Go ahead. Actually, a couple of them. This is Martin McLaughlin again. Uh, first of all, congratulations. Uh, this galactic cosmic ray uh, issue has been swept under the rug, in my opinion, too long. Um, we all are confident that we can shield against solar particle events. But, um, you know, a proton going at near the speed of light is a tough animal to deal with. Uh, so, good. Two questions. Uh, I've heard about some work on, on doing selection of astronauts. There's a wide that there's some variation. I don't know how wide in the susceptibility of individuals. Uh, is there anything uh, you know of in that area to um, take that? And my second question is, 
I've also heard work on, well, let them get exposed and we get them back, we'll fix them with bone marrow transplants or something. So uh, those are my two questions. Sure, those are uh, great and interesting interesting questions, uh, particularly the second one, I think that's interesting. Um, yeah, the, for the first question, is there any sort of um, predisposition for, uh, I guess, for cancer? Uh, certainly, I mean, you know, genetically, there are all kinds of predispositions. Um, I think uh, I, I don't, I would love to know how astronaut selection uh, takes place. I think that's been um, shielded for a long time. And is uh, I think even you can't do a freedom of information request, although some have tried. Uh, so it would be interesting to see if they're doing something like uh, whole genome sequencing on uh, on maybe the final uh, few candidates or something. And and you know that that field itself is kind of it's you know a little bit wobbly. Like how how can you really know? It's almost like Minority Report. You know how can you how do you know that some particular uh, DNA variants will lead to increased susceptibility? It's not always so clear. Um, so I'm not, you know, I'm not really sure, uh, uh, for that question. Uh, the second question I think is interesting too, um, should we just let the, you know, maybe, maybe that's more of a, a moral question or more of a question of, of consent for particular astronauts. Um, do you just let them get exposed to the radiation and roll the dice and try to fix it later? Um, you know, I, <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. I, and I don't know, um, the morals of that. I'm sure there are people much smarter than me who will go into the bioethics of that. Um, personally, I would not want to do that, especially if something like this exists. So currently there are no countermeasures to GCR. Um, so if this exists, I personally would, would want to take it rather than uh, take the risk of getting cancer and, and getting a bone marrow transplant. I think that's much more traumatic than my drug, but... <laughs> Um, but I, you know, I also have to prove that it works. So well, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, yes, you're right because uh, I think both from your uh, uh, research, uh, Alina also mentioned this uh, open mouth. It's uh, things regarding to uh, regarding you know the stem cells, you know, or those kind of experiments or those kind of uh, uh, ethical issues. Uh, so this is something that. Uh, yeah, yeah, we have our technical chair, Gary, Mr. Gary Moyer here. Uh, so, Gary, do you want to say a few words? Oh, Actually, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't you need a microphone. You need a microphone. Right, where is that? Oh. Yeah, hello, this is Gary Moyer. Uh, I had quite a diverse career over the course of my <laughs> many years in the industry. Uh, one of the interesting things I did what actually was to work on a system called the attached cell payloads, which was uh, actually a PRW division, which was created specifically for that purpose and to minimize the cost of internet. Uh, uh, anyway, I came into that group uh, when they ran into problems structurally. And in the course of uh, an initial assessment, I could not identify the structure that supported these heavy specimens. Uh, we ended up with a crew of four people uh, repairing that, that configuration uh, over the course of about six months. But that configuration was designed to grow uh, sodium iodide and other 
exotic crystals in this environments. And so the question that I really would like to ask is, did you discuss the uh, structural and the uh, uh, and the services necessary from the uh, from the space station for to support the system? I'll pass the question back over to you. Sure. So, sorry, just it's a little difficult to hear. So, my to understand, uh, just to to recap the question. Uh, have I have I clarified with NASA the types of structural uh, support needed to do the experiment? Is that what you're asking? Yes, but also in addition to structural, it's also the you know all of the power of the uh, the examples. Sure, uh, it was a, are necessary in space. Yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. So, so good question. I, I uh, thankfully I. I I'm happy to, again, kind of uh, kick the can to people much smarter than me for things like payload integration and, and things of that nature. So I know uh, companies such as uh, Spacebox, who presented here today, as well as um, many other uh, companies, uh, NanoRacks, I think, you know, uh, plenty of uh, sort of payload launch providers kind of handle that end of it. So I, I am lucky enough that I just get to be on the scientific side and uh, try to come up with cool ideas and try to win money. And when I win the money, I get to go to these companies and 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 say, hey, uh, I want to do this experiment. I need you to make sure that it works structurally and uh, power and, and all that stuff. And they kind of work it out. <laughs> and there's always a negotiation. But I, um, yeah, I think, you know, experiments like this have been done for a long time and there's nothing uh, too, uh, too wild about these requirements for power or anything. What kind of geometry or what kind of kind of uh, uh, interfaces or volume and, and weight do you need to, to do your tasks? Yeah, so so the project we have now is a is a ground study. So we you know we can luckily do as much as we want, but uh, we were looking at uh, you know CubeSat size volume. Um, it doesn't require uh, too much of a of a footprint. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I think something that you know, if we were able to get on ISS or Axiom, we could use one of the nano racks type footprints. So they've got plenty of variable sized racks um, that that are basically cell culture incubators. Um, hopefully that answers your question. I'm not too much of an expert on that end of things. <laughs> so you're actually saying that you can actually work using the the CubeSat kind of volume? Yeah. The ones that I worked on were roughly uh, a little over a foot cube, and, uh, and they included so the, all the support the support systems necessary in the in the specimen uh, test test elements, and they were supported in the, in the structural rack. That was partly what I worked on. Mm -hmm. But um, but those but those cubes were on the order of fifty to seventy pounds. Mm -hmm. So you can understand that uh, when uh, the structure came in looking something like the um, like the trailers, like the like the house trailers, uh, structural supports, but that wasn't going to carry it for for launch and landing possibility. 
So, um, yeah, I can imagine that would be a big problem. <laughs> CubeSat, that's an easily solved yeah. support problem. Although, if you, you still may need interfaces for power and, and even dependables. CubeSats are pretty limited in capabilities. But, um, I'll go. I'll go one one other step in the past in, the, in my career. Um, when I hired into TRW, uh, one of the projects I was hired for was the vacuum biology instrument, and uh, so that little one cubic foot. Actually, it's a little. It was a little smaller than that. Uh, Laboratory actually supported three independent laboratories, uh, plus an additional, basically, CubeSat size specimen area that uh, carried the uh, support materials such as gases and, uh, and other and, and nutrients and so forth that were used in the, uh, in the, in the other three experiment lab. So that was a that was a watchword. It really, truly was. Uh, and they also had another cubic foot that was used for the electronic support and computers and so forth. So uh, I didn't work on that part. But uh, at that point, I kind of ran out of my out of my question. Um, but you do you do operate in a in a one atmosphere environment, uh, basically an atmosphere space station, or or do you want or or is, are you happy to operate in an unmanned satellite? Um, yeah, I, I think we're. I mean, I think one atmosphere would be uh, would be great. I mean, the cells the cells have to uh, live and and grow and survive. So, yeah, they need to be you know. Uh, atmosphere, like uh, as though it were on the ISS, particularly if the drug is meant to intervene on something like ISS or uh, Lunar Gateway, it would be good to have the environment be as close to that as possible. Yeah, I did run out of my question. Yeah, you can wait. If you have more questions, we can, we can see. Uh, right now, Red Hawk, uh, do you want to speak out? You have the mic. Yes. Yeah. Can you just say a few words about you and uh, your uh, thoughts for space? Yeah, sure. Um, first of all, hi everyone. I am a. Uh, my name is Dragat. I am from Jordan, and uh, I am part of Space for Girls. Uh, actually, I'm a mechatronics engineering student in my fourth year, and uh, interesting in space in general, specifically medicine in space and rovers. <clears throat> um, our mission in Space for Girls is to empower young women to become um, innovators in the field of STEM and to become the next generation of leaders in the rapidly growing space industry. Um, specifically, I'm a part of um, a program called Stellar Rising Stars. Um, it's a program to immersive and um, educational um, initiative uh, tailored for skills women, uh, selected, sorry, <laughs> um, for selected women ages from 17 to 25 
and aims to break down barriers and stereotypes by encouraging young women throughout, throughout the world to confidently pursue their interests in uh, space-related fields. So this is about Space for Girls. Um, let me thank you for this really inspiring and um, like amazing work and um, hope and wish the best for you. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. Stay in touch. Uh, actually, I do have, uh, if nobody has any more questions, I do have a, a quick question because obviously, uh, Yaroslav introduced you. So, are you working with Spacebox or you plan to have something working with them? Uh, yeah, so I, I uh, had the pleasure of meeting uh, Spacebox, uh, Yaroslav, and Alina at the uh, the Ascend uh, meeting oh, in Las Vegas. So we were all uh, we we all competed. Although uh, fortunately, we were uh, they were on one competition, and I was in kind of a, a a separate competition. So we were not competitors with one another, um, but we met each other and and got to know each other uh, a little bit, and you now are excited about the, the the possibilities in front of us. So I think they're I think they're you know doing really interesting work, and there's clearly I think an overlap between you know uh, scientists and um, uh, technology providers and launch providers and you know the more of us we can get into a room the, the better the odds are that we can get some really interesting science and data to move forward i think it, it will take everyone you know every every mission takes hundreds of people um yeah uh, you know everyone has expertise in different things so it's been really great to to get to know them and you know we wouldn't have honestly we wouldn't have met if it had it not been for the ai and for ascend um, so, you know, thank you. I know this is the, I guess, LA Las Vegas chapter specifically, but, um, but thank you to the AIAA team more broadly as well and for having us today. Yeah, thank you. Well, I didn't realize you were there. Actually, the uh, uh, Axiom Space, if you and Richard talk about Axiom Space, actually the uh, VP, former VP and chief scientist, uh, she was there. I don't think we get a mm -hmm. chance to meet her. Uh, she was there. And um, that's a good thing for the other Sand. And next year is going to be in Las Vegas again. All right, Deborah, thank you very much. Uh, so that, that's really good access space. Actually, just like Gary, she, uh, he used to work in Viking on the first uh, uh, Viking of uh, Biology. Mm -hmm. And actually, some of our members, like uh, uh, the uh, Alicia, uh, let's see, stay, stay, stay a little bit. Uh, please, you uh, will welcome to speak up. Basically, I wanted to say that you know that you also mentioned about Artemis Four, uh, but actually, the this December, I believe this uh, Artemis, I think this a uh, company called Astrobotics, uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They are going to launch. Uh, uh, they descended to Florida. They are going to launch the uh, the Peregrine uh, lander, the robot, uh, to the moon. That's the first uh, American uh, lander back to the moon since Apollo Seventeen. Uh, so it's this December, early, as early as this December. So that's another company, you talk about state station, but anyway, uh, has some members, uh, they actually uh, actually working on sending directly to the moon. Uh, you know, that's something that could be interesting. And eventually the goal is, I understand the space station is kind of like a national laboratory, but eventually people are going to the moon and Mars. Uh, so so you could consider maybe doing something, you know, on the moon or Mars, even Mars. 
And uh, we can see how this uh, terribly launched and also uh, Elon Musk uh, Starship has to open. That, that's what we're going to do. Yeah. So just uh, some comments. Uh, so Alicia, do you want to say something? I think you are talking about, mention something uh, in the chat. Um, it, 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 I'll give you the mic. If you want to speak up, please. If not, then uh, I don't see any more question here. So Alicia, you have the mic. Hi, um, sorry, I, I do have to hop off in like a minute, but uh, I just wanted to put in the chat um, how, just to introduce myself. Uh, this is a really great couple of talks. Um, I'm Alicia, I'm the founder of A Billion Dreams, a nonprofit, and we engrave names and dreams of kids, folks going through cancer treatments and loved ones on space missions. So our first one is launching on a, on a plaque on one of the SpaceX Transporter 10 um, missions. I'm a young cancer survivor myself, um, and I put my LinkedIn in the chat for anyone who would who would like to connect. And um, I'm really excited to keep keep um, learning more about folks' research. And uh, this is my first um, AIA event, so um, hopefully the first of many that I get to be involved with. I had one more technical question. Um... Um, how quickly do you need to uh, progress from uh, cellular to uh, bigger models, you know, uh, mice, uh, humans? Um, awesome. you know, how does what's that roadmap look like? And what kind of durations does it do you need uh, for those experiments? Yeah, that's a great question as well. Thank you. Uh, so we. Um, we're starting in cells. Obviously, it's a big leap, as it always is, for any drug to go from cells to humans. Uh, we're we're also we're interested in uh, 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 partnering with the Trish Institute, uh, Translational Research in Space Health, I think is the acronym, out of the Baylor College of Medicine. And so they they have a, a they we're we're going to write some grant work for them for this project, and they really do are not interested in animal model data. They want to see uh, implementation of, of a potential countermeasure within three years uh, or so. And so we're trying to stick to that timeline to, to jump basically from cells to humans in about you know three years, which seems a little ridiculous. Uh, but I think one thing that's working in our favor is that the, the drug we're proposing to, to use is under a clinical trial phase one for human safety for a different purpose. And so that data is set to come out in 2025, and we're not involved in that study, but we will benefit greatly from seeing that humans can uh, tolerate the drug, and there are not any any uh, crazy side effects or anything. So we're, you know, I, I'm not the roadmap is not fully clear, but but the Trish Institute has been very clear that they do not want animal data, uh, and so we're working towards uh, trying to trying to achieve that. So we're we're hopeful that you know the teams uh, running the clinical trials that things go well and that we can kind of continue to to work up our data and you know but it's always you saw Alina's uh, funnel of uh, of kind of drugs that you know don't make it through the valley of death so of course kind of going from a cell anywhere is is really tough and so you know we'll see what that looks like but we're optimistic <laughs> that's all we have is our optimism I guess. <laughs> Excellent. Answers, yeah. <laughs> Any question? 
Any more questions? Okay, now let's thank uh, Dr. Devon Rubin. Uh, Rubin is a fantastic uh, presentation. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. And Alina, very good. So appreciate it. And all the people online, I know you don't want to come here, but hopefully you can see you in person uh, pretty soon. Thank you. Uh, yes, I, I look forward to seeing you in person, hopefully yeah. next time. <laughs> Unfortunately, after the pandemic, you know, a lot of people prefer to stay online so you can see what happened today. Uh, it's hard to get people out, but we're gradually moving there. More and more people showing up. Okay, thank you. Have a wonderful day. Stay in touch.